Welcome to the Female Professoriate Podcast. I'm Olga Martin Ortega. In this podcast, I talk to female academics about their lives and work, the choices and decisions they made to get where they are, the women who inspired them along the way, and how to empower women at earlier stages in their academic developments. Today, I have the immense pleasure and joy to have with me Professor Julia Martin Ortega at the University of Leeds. Professor Martin Ortega is a professor in ecological economics and associate director of the Institute Water and Leeds. Julia has been researching on um, environmental sciences and economics for 12, 15 years now. And uh, her research focuses on the relationship between society and water systems. It's uh, a pleasure to talk to Julia, not only because she is uh, a leading academic in her field, a very uh, young professor, and, uh, and as I am a relatively new professor, two, three years now, and uh, also because Julia is my sister and is one of the women that have inspired me along my career. So welcome, Julia. Welcome to the Female Professoriate Podcast. Thank you very much. I am so delighted to be taking part in this fantastic initiative. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So, Julia, the um, way I like to uh, start my conversations with uh, my female colleagues is to, first of all, um, have a little um, uh, understanding of what's, uh, what you're working on at the moment. So what's the, as I said, when I introduce, the, when I introduce you, your research is very interdisciplinary. It's a, it, it sits as the, at the crossroads between um, environmental sciences and economics. And uh, you uh, really look and have been looking uh, through your, uh, your career to the relationship between um, society and all of us and water and how we manage and how we understand our own relationship with water and the future, I guess, of, the, of water management. Um, tell us, what are you working on at the moment? And, and maybe I know you have a lot of projects, therefore, why you choose one project in particular to, to talk to us about? Sure. So, as you said, I, I really see it very much in the intersection between um, natural sciences and uh, economics. Uh, more specifically, what I try to do is try to understand how the changes that occur in ecosystems, and more specifically water ecosystems, how those changes uh, affect humans and human welfare and you know, society. Uh, so to illustrate what I do, I'll pick up one of my sort of most prominent uh, projects and one that I've been working for the last maybe seven years through a number of different fundings, uh, which is uh, on the sort of the effects that changes and degradation on peatland ecosystems have on humans. Now, peatlands, for those who don't know, are essentially wetlands in which the, you know, the vegetation that covers these wetlands uh, degrade in a particular way, which makes that they store a lot of carbon in them. So essentially, they are fantastic carbon storage. They're actually the more uh, sort of space-effective carbon storage of all terrestrial ecosystems. This means that in a moment in which we have this very dramatic climate emergency, peatlands are really very much uh, you know, a very, very powerful storage of that carbon that keeps it out of the atmosphere and keeps it in the earth so it's not contributing to increasing the temperature of the of the atmosphere. 
now, what happens is that when these ecosystems, these peatlands, they uh, degrade, and they degrade for many reasons, which are uh, mostly man-made, about drainage or burning them or essentially just extracting them for fuel, uh, they start releasing that carbon they have been uh, uh, storing. So actually, they can move from being a very powerful carbon storage to actually becoming a carbon source. They release carbon in the atmosphere, threatening, uh, the, you know, increasing the, the climate change effect. Now, what happens is that these uh, pitlands, you know, that they are very particular ecosystems because they are not very generally well known. They're not like a forest or a lake. There's not a place in which naturally people will identify as beautiful or positive ecosystems. In people's imaginarium, peatlands are about almost like defined as wastelands. There's very little you can do in these peatlands. They're not good for agriculture. They're not good for grazing. Uh, they don't look very pretty, although I now love them, but you know, they're not really very pretty. For, non, for, for general public. So this means that people have a very ambiguous relationship with these peatlands. They are not an uh, emblematic ecosystem that people want to protect. They're not like the Amazon. They're not like the forest where people can see themselves going and hike, for example. So this means that for very long, they have been overlooked. And those who have understood about the importance of these peatlands have been, you know, the conservationists have been very worried about what is the the public engagement with peatlands and whether people will care and value those peatlands. Now, what I have been researching for the last seven years is trying to disentangle this very ambiguous relationship that people have with this ecosystem and uh, what are the social effects that they will have if this peatland gets degraded or if, on the contrary, we start investing in restoring these peatlands. Um, I've been looking at sort of from very sort of deep human elements which have to do with the value, the sort of more uh, cultural and human values that these peatlands have to the other side of the spectrum, what is the economic value of actually restoring these peatlands. Now, this is uh, something that I've been very passionate about because what I really like about this is how the the complexity, the, the ecological complexity that these ecosystems have actually are mirrored by a very interesting, also complex relationship with humans and, and the traditions about using using peatlands. All this in the context of the of the current climate emergency. Uh, so yeah, I, I think this is, I think this example to show you because I think it illustrates well where my work sits in, the, in this uh, intersection and really trying to understand how the ecosystem works from an ecological perspective and how that connects to the way we humans um, interact with the ecosystem and then take decisions which are the political decisions about whether we restore the pitlands or whether we let them continue to degrade. Uh, yeah, so this is this is my pitlogram, let's put it this way. It's not one single project, it's a project I have developed with uh, colleagues from uh, several parts of the UK. Uh, notably, I want to mention my, my, my very good colleague Klaus Glenk from the Scotland Rural College, with whom I'm developing this, and with whom we are working on maybe this becoming one uh, REF impact case in the, in the forthcoming submission.
that sounds um, fascinating. Who would have thought that uh, Finland could could have that fascinating element of the of them, as you say? And um, picking up on this um, uh, constant that in your work about the relationship between ecosystems and people, but no, not only just um, as economic value, as you said, but uh, social value, and to sort of extend, I guess, uh, related to emotional value as well, or or um, that sense of uh, of uh, to what extent the ecosystem is part of the identity of the people or not. This is uh, something that I have been fascinated uh, throughout your career because I've observed it very closely from when you um, started your own PhD uh, about water and uh, it was um, uh, the um, uh, value, the social value that we put in, on certain water uh, services for what I could understand this all these years ago. And um, and you've always had this look, no? this uh, approach to um, the economics, and which is a, a very social and to some extent, maybe psychosocial approach. Uh, but uh, but maybe that uh, has to do as well with a special sensitivity that you have through the to the social aspect of this. Is this something that uh, you're finding more and more in your discipline? Is this what you bring, what you um, mean when you talk about the being in the crossroad between environmental sciences and economics? Absolutely. And actually, it's, it's very nice to hear you saying that because I think it truly reflects uh, you know, the trajectory that has brought me here. I have to say that I actually train as, a, as an environmental scientist. So my, my, you know, my bachelor is on environmental science. So what I studied was ecology, biology, atmospheric sciences, um, and this kind of, of things. Um, but actually, I have become essentially a, what we call an ecological economist. And I sit in, in a department which is highly interdisciplinary, but it's essentially a social science uh, department. So I have made that journey, which I think is, is very true. It reflects what I am really interested in is in the relationship of people with the environment. I think there's a lot of super valuable research to be done on the environment, on ecosystems themselves. But I believe that, you know, ecosystem no longer for many, many years now exist without humans and the effect that humans we have in ecosystems and the effect that the ecosystem has on us is absolutely interlinked. It's something that essentially is the, is the very nature of you know, the earth uh, for, for thousands and hundreds of years. So uh, in a way, you cannot study one without the other. I mean, I don't want to say you can't because of there's many, many things that can be studied separately, but what really interests me is that interaction. And thinking whether, you know, this is, this is definitely a trend. This is not just, I am not the only one by far uh, at this intersection, uh, but I have witnessed the intersection growing. I think I belong to a generation of people who, for the first time, very firmly made the intersection the object of our study. I think this is something which is not very old, uh, uh, as you said, so I, I finished my PhD in 2008, so this is uh, of years now. And definitely, uh, I've seen, I have seen, I've witnessed the change. I have actually been one of a player on that change happening. And this is one of the things I feel absolutely most proud of in my, of my own career, having contributed to, to make uh, that one of the shapes of environmental science is the study of the inter interaction with humans. 
And this is something that now is widely recognized internationally and very much also in the UK through the funding. I almost, you know, I feel so lucky because there is almost uh, a demand for the kind of research that we do. I'm constantly invited to join projects because the funding bodies have understood, uh, you know, the environmental uh, oriented funding bodies have understood that we, can, we need to study the two together. So in that respect, I feel both very proud and very lucky to have been part of that process. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. That takes me back a little bit to when you started your, your academic career. No? And I wanted to, uh, for us to talk a little bit about this and how um, initially you hadn't thought of an academic career um, as such. You, didn't, you started in the industry and, uh, and then moved to academia. And, um, and you've done this uh, progression, which has been a fantastic and, and very fast uh, and strong uh, progression. I, I hesitate to say fast because it tends to happen that uh, when applied to women, sometimes the word fast implies some kind of uh, having done it not, not uh, properly or just being fast fast track or something which I want to avoid and I'll be happy to for us to talk about that a little bit more but so um, tell me a little bit about the the beginnings of your professional career how do you decide to be an academic you know how do you decide to be a, a female academic and uh, and how uh, has that uh, impacted maybe or maybe not into who you are now Yes, so as you said, I didn't go straight uh, into academia. I had some experience in industry. Um, I have a bit of a funny anecdote about this because, uh, you know, our mom, she's a a very prominent uh, academic, a professor in developmental psychology, and she's a very important figure in our life and has been very inspiring and very powerful engine on, on the way we see the we approach life but then also my sister you uh, also started an academic career quite quite uh, directly after the the degree the law degree so i have these two examples of really powerful inspiring examples at home of of, uh, women academic uh, and I remember it, you know, mom was, uh, our mom was suggesting that what about doing a PhD when I was doing, you know, fi- finishing my degree. And I remember telling her, no, I want a proper job. <laughs> so, you know, it was interesting, like, while well, having, having these two people knowing very, <laughs> that very was a very good hand, answer. <laughs> Having this, this very first-hand experience uh, of, of what an academic meant, I still said, no, I want a proper job. And I guess, you know, I don't know why I said that. I don't think I said that because I didn't think academic was academia was a job. But I guess what I meant is I want to be outside in the outside world. I guess you know I, I, that's what I meant. Or thinking retrospectively, I think that's what I meant. I wanted to have experience out. I wanted to get out of university. So I did. Uh, I decided to do uh, an MBA, uh, a Master in Business Administration. Now the reason why I chose an MBA is because at that time the world looked quite dichotomous to me. So it was either academia or industry, like a, a, you know, an enterprise uh, companies. Uh, so I thought if I want to work in a company, I need to know how companies uh, uh, work. So I should do an MBA. And then I found this MBA, which was uh, highly international. 
It was uh, it's the, you, you did it in three universities in, in Bilbao in Spain in, in Nantes in France and then in Bradford in the UK. And for me that was it. All I wanted was international, international, international. I wanted to to, to see the world. So I did the MBA and it was highly successful. The MBA in doing what it was meant to do, which was to get me a job in an industry uh, quite quickly. But for me, one of the things that it was very clear doing doing the MBA is that all my colleagues, except for another uh, woman, were either lawyers or had long, you know, business studies before. And this other uh, woman and I, we were the only ones who had a different background. So she was uh, she was um, she had a bachelor in phar- pharmacy. And I had a bachelor in environmental science. And it was very interesting how we both directly found our way into businesses which were directly related to our background. So I started working in a company which which did green waste management. And because that was one of my, my wishes. I wanted to stay in the environmental sector. So I work in this company in France for which almost we, three years. Which we joked about a- uh, for a long time that, you, <laughs> that you, my little sister is selling shit. <laughs> Exactly. So we did a compost. We were doing compost and I was selling shit. So my parents used to say, all these years of the study and my daughter sells shit. But I was very proud of the shit I was selling, I have to tell you. I was literally the marketing person for, for selling this compost. So yeah, I was selling shit. Very good quality shit though. Um, anyway, so that was very interesting because it was fantastic because I had a really creative job. I had to create the brand. This this company who was specialized in doing actually the, the, the recycling of this green waste, but they didn't sell it. And and I was in charge with selling this, this compost. And it was fantastic. So I had a lot of freedom and creativity. I created a brand. I invented a business for them. So you could think it was really inspiring and really creative and not a boring job. But very interestingly, after a while, I did get bored. And I realized that I was getting bored because I didn't have sufficient of the uh, intellectual challenge. Now, I don't want this to sound as, you know, people in sales, people in marketing, all my respect, these are very, you know, these are jobs that require a lot of intelligence. So I do not want to say that this was not a job that required intelligence, but what it didn't have, it was the opportunity to reflect deeply on why the things were happening. I, I remember having the feeling that marketing was, there was no science in marketing, there was just practice. And of course, all my respect for that, but I was missing something. I was missing something that now I know that what I was missing was the science, was the process of disentangling what's going on and why and what are the relations, the, 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 the causal effects, what are the drivers of things happening. That for me represented the depth that was lacking in my job. And this is when I realized, oh, actually, maybe I do want to go to academia because that is what provided me with the opportunity of that deeper thinking that I was missing. And maybe that's I am how missing I a non-proper job. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm missing a non-proper job. Mm. Uh, in a way, I felt, I felt that I was in a, some kind of a production chain but instead of doing cars, I was doing uh, compost and I was trying to sell that compost. And somehow that at some point, it just ran out of interest for me. And again, all my respect for you know, people in those jobs, we, we definitely need industry and we need uh, economic activity, but just I felt empty. So mm-hmm. that's when I decided to, to, to do my PhD. 
Um, I first started doing a PhD on compost, <laughs> but I quickly moved into into water. Well, so yeah, are, that's a little bit like I'm the sure story. Water, the water world is very, very happy that you moved from, from the compost. <laughs> Having said that, there is a little bit of uh, compost in Pitland, so maybe I am actually back to origins. Yes, maybe you never, you never left. So um, yeah, as you said, um, well, this two important uh, female academic figures in your in your um, beginnings or at least in your uh, immediate surroundings and um, uh, we should say um, our mother is Professor Rosario Ortega of the University of Córdoba and uh, and uh, and myself uh, very proud uh, uh, you, I always uh, make the joke my little sister is the is the smart one of the family and uh, <laughs> well it's true, not a joke true. actually I do believe it but um, <laughs> but, uh, but then so these these strong female figures um how you know one one of the things that really interests me into um especially that i want to explore in this podcast is how do female what is the role of female academics regarding um other female academics to so to what extent did when you uh, went into academia your only experience and background had been in into academia uh, or like you know higher education uh, in a PhD etc was uh, through these uh, women around you and suddenly you go into a world of man of men is that is this um, more appropriate to way to think of it or yeah, I think it is because you know I was I was thinking about this uh, because of course you know I was I, I listened to your other podcast and I know that's the core of your interest. See what's the role, the inspiring role that other women have had in your careers. So I was actually reflecting about this for my own career, and then I realized that actually most of the inspiring figures, or if you want, the academic mentors that I had through my career were actually male, and actually a quite particular type of male. Uh, you know, so my people probably like between 15 or 20 years older than me, male and natural scientist, which uh, an exception. And, and I was thinking, wow, why is that the case? And I think it's because I am very much somebody who is even even though and now I am a, a more social scientist, I'm somebody who actually camps on the nat on the natural science world, and this is still male dominated. Uh, and particularly if you think about the beginning, so 12 years ago, I have these really fantastic figures. These were really um, interesting men and people who, you know, they have helped me a lot. Uh, and I am very grateful to them. I really have learned immensely of these men. But in a way, we have replicated the conventional sort of patriarchal mode in which there's this white, older male professor who is helping the young, energetic, very enthusiastic uh, female who is starting. And I have to say, it has worked wonderfully for me. You know, I, it's been, it has happened in a very positive way with very, very few exceptions. I felt supported, I felt rewarded, I felt encouraged. So I have only very good things to say about these men. But it is true that when I think back, there's been very few uh, females who were more senior to me and who were who had this inspiring role, and this is just because simply by the numbers they were just more mating in in the in the world in, in the area, and this has made me reflect about 
what's the situation now and what how can I actually turn things around so the the women who are starting now will have some to look at uh, and what what role can I play on that because obviously these men were wonderful in helping me with my academic career but they were not people with whom I could uh, share other kind of problems that were in my way for doing the academic career they would you know I could discuss content with them I could discuss papers with them but I could not discuss any other things luckily I was really really lucky because I had that at home I had Mm -hmm. that in my mom and in my sister and my older sister but what about the other women who don't have that Uh, so so I think that's yeah, no. So yep. I just want to, yeah, wanted to jump in here because I think this is a is an important point uh, with the, the people of our generation in terms of the two things. May the uh, mostly the fact that our supervisors um, and the, our heads of departments, our more senior colleagues, were all male, but also uh, so so this you know created some kind of uh, um, specific dynamics and relationships in your collegial and and superior relationship, which in your case was very positive in my case not so and uh, and in many other cases I think uh, men proven to be very patronizing very um, uh, kind of in in occasions you know put you down in terms of not uh, championing you enough or or um, even worse but um, it, it that's on the one side and the other side is the role model so I think the the role model it's um, it was an important uh, element for me and for to bring the podcast into life is this idea of I think I had two role models when I was uh, being um, uh, trying to to bring up my academic career and I wanted to ask you if if you had the same so one of the role models was um, really hard-working women with tried everything pushed through every single step and 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 you know obstacle and uh, uh, which could was a role model that we knew very well, and then uh, the other role model of the of the bookworm or the uh, lab mouse, no, someone who's um, really doesn't have uh, a life outside of the university, is very very focused, very concentrated, and no one can say no to this person because she has one hundred and twenty five percent of the cv that anyone else uh so the the model of uh the uh woman who's just energetic and, and screams and, and uh, uh, hits the table if need be to assert her rights and the woman that does the same but in a in a uh, covert and, and very kind of silence way this the, this was what i felt at the time that i could be either or and um and luckily now i think People like you are are bringing this diversity to the tables. Like you don't have to be a, an ogre. Um, in Spanish, we say the word ogro. No? You don't have to be like the angry bitch all the time, or the isolated um, uh, genius. You know. So is that is that something you can relate to? Well, I think it's very interesting because as I hear you talk, I'm trying to scream in my brain for the women I know. And I, you know, it's so scant the amount of women that are more senior than me that are very directly in my field. I can think about two who were two wonderful women. And actually, 
they do not necessarily fit exactly in the description that you have, but they're very interesting because, uh, you know, one of them was the head of my department shortly for a while in, in my previous job, and she's a wonderful woman. She had quite three, three boys, three children, or four, I don't know, a lot, and she was, she was really hardworking. So she might fit in your, into your idea of the, of the very hardworking one, but definitely she was not an over. She was a really sweet lady. And there was another female you know, on her 50s, uh, no children, who, 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 who uh, had conversations with her, and she told me that she really had, had to fight. She had, had to get angry. So she, was, she didn't come across as, as about the beach, but she had sort of confessed to me that many times she, she just felt that she had to fight, fight, fight. Um, so, but but what I think is more prominent in, in this screening of my brain that I've been doing while you were talking is actually how few of them there are. So I think my field particularly, the role model is the non-existent, you know, the, the, the hardly there model, which uh, I think has made me, uh, has put me in the path of creating indeed my own model of, of female, uh, senior female academic. Um, and I think this is actually very interesting because where I have I have realized that where I got my inspiration from has been my peers, because the lack of this senior female figure, the general lack of this senior female figure, or not it, it's not been very abundant or very prominent, uh, has made me look into actually my peers and the people who I've created my own web of of female colleagues. I have this wonderful team of, of uh, women with whom I work. Uh, one of them was actually my, my own PhD student, who is now my, my peer, my colleague, and the other one was the, uh, um, a woman who, who's, who I was a line manager for. So I, I hired her, and then she started working in, 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 in the institute I was working under my supervision, let's put it that way, and now we have become really a, a, uh, friends and colleagues and I uh, earned so much from them and then when I think I also was I was program leader for an undergraduate course for three years at the University of Leeds and my, the other colleague who was managing the other undergraduate program we had to do a lot of things together and again she's slightly more junior than me but I would say very much a peer in that role we were peers because we were both doing pro, uh, undergraduate program leadership again I learned much from her so I have the feeling that through that web of peers we have managed to create an alternative model of this uh, this um, leading ac uh, female academics to what you were describing I think it has become we have we're creating something different which has to do with not necessarily being that kind of sort of academic mama in which you have to take care of uh, you know the people you work with as if they were their, 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 your children your academic children but it's just bringing something different it's bringing something which I think is inspiring not by just being this hard back-breaking hard-working person who just like a machine who does only that or mm. being this sort of kind of mama academic that takes care of you in every other way i think we're creating something which is much more diverse and much more uh, less dichotomous you know, more fluid and has to do mm. a lot with the actual relationship that we create between each other that, that's that's very interesting. It's fascinating, actually. I, I hadn't thought of it that way because I, I'm as well reflecting very much my own relationship with my, my female colleagues. And 
And um, when I was uh, hearing you talk, I was thinking, well, maybe it's a, mo it's a more horizontal relationship. You, know, you talk about your, their peers, their colleagues, whilst my relationships with my male colleagues have been much more vertical in terms of they're either my boss or someone who's more junior than me. And uh, whilst my colleagues, my female colleagues, even being more junior than me or, or um, in occasions more senior, the, we work very well as peers. And I think uh, I'm, I don't want to say that men don't, don't do this, but I think women, we, turn to, we tend to turn the working relationship into friendships as well. And uh, many of, of my, um, uh, the, the women I work with uh, are friends as well. And uh, this is, this is, you know, it's difficult in academia, I think, to define friendships because when we work, when you work together, you work very, very closely. And generally, the dynamic works well. It's fantastic because it is, you know, it's two minds thinking together. That what can be more exciting the two minds encountering each other. But on the other hand, this also could lead to complicated uh, interpersonal relationships. But this is what I've noticed, that my relationship with female academics are more horizontal. And, uh, and I tend to forget who, you know, who has, the, whether someone is in a in more senior position or not. I think you're right. I think we're developing this more horizontal way of interacting. Now, it doesn't come without risk because uh, sometimes, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if you are the, the project PI, you have the responsibility over the money, you have responsibility over delivery. And so you, you do have those things and those things are important. So I have found myself in, in it has never occurred with my uh, female uh, colleagues so far but because we develop this horizontal way of, re of relating to all the people we work with sometimes some people can get confused about you're just being the friend and and i have only had problems that we've made who have seen my leadership my approach to leadership as that we were mates uh, and this you know this indeed carries the risk of what happens when something goes wrong, what happens when there is no delivery, what happens when, you know, we have to control the money we have. And now it's very interesting because with all these women I've been developing this working relationship, which were relatively horizontal, I have not had any kind of conflict. But then suddenly I've met these uh, men who are working on my project for which I am PI, and suddenly they have misunderstood my friendly approach, my horizontal approach, as if you know we are completely equal, and we're not. We work together, we do things together, but each of us have our role. And if I am the person whose name is on the grant, and if there is no delivery, that goes on me. I have to be able to say, well, no, we have to do this now, or we have to do that, or no, we cannot spend the money like this and that. But what is really interesting is that misunderstanding, so far, it has only occurred with me, uh, with men. So I think it's very interesting. I think maybe we are adapting to this new way of leadership. And, and you know, maybe sometimes for men, it's difficult because they have been used to something and now the leadership approach is changing and they find some some men of course they don't generalize some men find it confusing that we can be very friendly but i can still be the pi of a project uh, so i think that's a very yeah. interesting reflection to have 
No, and, and I think it's important because I think we probably are the generation that had to do that, that transition in terms of, you know, the way we grew up academically, or we've said, you know, in your case, uh, it was through um, uh, men being very empowering to you. But at the end of the day, there's still a, a clear um, moment of uh, this, this, she's the the little girl that is coming and has all this potential and we're going to help her this way. Well, in my case, it's like he, she, there she's the little girl who thinks uh, yeah, she can uh, uh, speak uh, out of a turn or something like that. But, um, and we, we've moved this uh, into this more um, horizontal leadership that is still has to be leadership, as you say. So there still has to be exactly. the, the, the uh, head of the project, the head of the uh, research group is still one person and still us. And so I think our female um, colleagues in the earlier stages of their uh, career are very lucky in terms of being able to see this because we didn't see this leadership model. As you said, we had to create it ourselves. So I guess we have, they've gained something uh, out of this. You know, we we have um, uh, a step forward that we've put for them or a step in, in that ladder. <laughs> and I, in, you know, taking the opportunity now that we've got to this point in the conversation, I really want to ask you about your work at Water at Leeds and your work at uh, uh, Water Woman, the Water Woman Prizes, which I think, you know, are this, this you know, uh, walk the walk, talk the talk moment, which in seeing from outside, it is revolutionary in terms of it would definitely change a whole generation of academics. So uh, tell us about Water Woman. Yeah, great. So first, maybe I need to explain what is Water at Leeds, which is this this um, you know the, the organization from which we we do the Water Woman Awards. So Water at Leeds is a, a cross faculty uh, institution in the University of Leeds. Uh, it, it functions more like a research hub. So essentially, everybody who is researching on water related topics in the University of Leeds can become a member of. Um, Sorry, anybody who's working on water at Leeds University can become a member of Water at Leeds. And that makes us uh, one of the largest uh, water research hubs of any university in the world, which covers from you know, every discipline, from engineering, uh, environmental science, marine science, to um, humanities, art, law, uh, all around the, the issue of water. Now, I am Associate Director of Water at Leeds, and one, my mission specifically, there's, there's uh, several missions in Water Leads. My mission is that of promoting funding and partnership. It's been essentially trying to get my colleagues to uh, feel empowered to apply for research funding and be able to acquire the resources that enable them to do fantastic research, right? So that's my, my mission. That's what I try to do in Water Athletes. So when I was thinking, of, when I was approaching what's going to be my strategy for doing this uh, as associate director, I was thinking, I observed uh, there were a number of incredibly successful uh, researchers at Water, uh, Water Athletes. So this flagship researcher, uh, mostly male, but a couple of fantastic women who were really leading the way, getting a lot of money, a lot of grants, hiring a lot of people, fantastic. But I said, well, then what I need to do is, these people seem to be doing really well, so what we need to do is get other people to do well as well. So it was not about just keep feeding the very successful machines that we have, 
but creating a, a more extending the base. So I was trying to see who are the people who are not yet applying for funding. And then it's so, it's so obvious that when you look at uh, uh, there's such fantastic science being done by women, but women are still, to a very large extent, much less numerous as PI, as, as principal investigators on grants. This means that they are not the ones applying for the money, even though many of them are the ones doing the, the research that goes with that money, right? And I, I think... We know this, right? We know this from many people who have been studying this before. Is is because to actually go for a large research grant, the first thing that needs to happen is that you need to believe you can win it, okay? And then you you have to feel they say, well, I'm going to try this because I might win it. I might not win it, but I I might win it, so I'm going to go for it. Now, this I'm going to go for it. Somehow, still less women feel they can go for it. So I put as my mission uh, for me to say, well, I'm going to try to make these women tell themselves, yeah, I can go for it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try, even if I don't get it. So that's how the, I say, well, how, how can I do that? I mean, you think about many different things. You think about mentorship projects. Uh, as they are getting these super fantastic women um, uh, uh, that we already have who are winning a lot of uh, grants. I can let, make them uh, mentor others, but one of the characteristics of these very successful women is that they're very busy. And I say, I don't want to give anybody more work. So how can I do this with the resources we have and not putting any more strength again in those very few women who have managed to do that and then are carrying all this weight on their shoulder? So this is how I came with the idea of the Water Woman Award. So this is an award which is uh, granted to to anybody, any woman working in uh, any any person identifying as a woman uh, who is doing research on water at the University of Leeds, and it has four categories. So it's um, research excellence. So it's based on whether somebody has made a very interesting achievement, uh, funding success. Somebody has made a, a, an interesting funding success, um, societal impact, and then support. So also we include other women who actually provide support to to research, whether it's lab technicians, whether it's um, research administrators. You know, anybody who's providing service who who leads to to research being done. But uh, those are the categories which are quite typical nowadays, right? Impact, uh, funding, etc. But what is really important in, is that they are not granted exclusively on based on the academic achievement. They are granted on two criteria. One is the, the nature of the achievement, so you know how good your funding was, and this is not just about the value, how much money you want, but uh, you know if you were an earlier career researcher, whether, you know, it was, even if it was not a lot of money, but how competitive it is, whatever. You know, the typical criteria, if you get a research excellence one, is you got a fantastic paper out, whatever. But then the other criteria, I think is more relevant to this conversation, is the inspiring power that your achievement has. So, and this was very important, because what I wanted to do with these awards is that identify those women who had very powerful stories to tell around that achievement and a story that could then inspire others and say well actually you know i also have this so this meant that in the application very rarely in an academic context is that you could actually include non-academic criteria for example you say i got this funding grant while i was raising my two children 
for Asia, I got this paper out uh, doing a research that it meant that I had to resolve a conflict between two communities, two indigenous communities I was working with in the, in the Amazon, for example, and I used my skills as a conflict resolution person to achieve this research in which we had this conflict, for example. Or I actually did this while I was uh, suffering from very severe back pain or whatever, you know. So we wanted to, you know, fill, ask the women, okay, you have applied for this grant. Why do you feel proud about this? What's the story that is behind this uh, achievement that you have uh, managed to, to do that you think can be powerful for other women? And what was fantastic is that when we received the applications from the women, uh, we found so many other stories that we had not even contemplated. There were people who were telling us why they were proud of a paper. And the paper was not even you know, in such a high journal. But what this person was telling us is that through making that paper, she realized that uh, there were the internal and psychological mechanism through which she actually felt as the paper was evolving in her head, she felt empowered enough to then submit it. And this is an example of somebody who was very early career. And I found that the story through which she told her own understanding of herself was something that was so powerful for other women to hear. I mean, when they are in front of their blank piece of paper trying to write a paper, and they heard the story of somebody else looking inside herself and reflecting about what you know, what's the what can make them write that paper. I found that there was so much inspiring power on those stories uh, that we have created this fantastic stock of inspiring stories that now we are sharing with the rest of our communities. And we're going to have these action learning uh, groups, and we're going to have. Um, meetings and seminars and things between these these women both the winners and the applicants of their work that we really hope they can serve as inspiration for others and what i think is very interesting and is very generally feminine in this is the stories the narratives that are going behind the achievement this is not about here i am i think we're moving from this very alpha male rhetoric of how achievements are made to actually a generally fame version of what was important of this achievement. It's not important that it was 10 million pounds of grant, what was important is that the way I achieved it, it was by pulling together this, this and that. Those kind of narratives, which I think are different and they can be very empowering. Yeah, I think I, I think it is it's something fascinating that I haven't seen anywhere else is the, you know, bringing out the story behind the woman and, and, and behind the, the achievement, it, but in a way that really highlights the empowering capacity that your own reflection over your process has and, and, and gets to know, gets to yourself to know yourself better. I think uh, it is it's important when you say, you know, until now we've been talking about the achievement whilst now we're talking a bit more about the process. And I think the process is what makes you reflect about how much you've grown intellectually as well. And in terms of your own resilience and in terms of your own uh, capacity to develop ideas and to overcome challenges that then it's actually what creates 
the your thought process and and you know, helps you come up with with different uh, theories or with different approaches so but we are understanding much more what is this thought process which is very it has a very uh, emotional element as well it's not just all uh, uh mathematic into sit down look at the screen think of some things read some things do some calculations and then spit it out I, yeah. I have another perfect example to illustrate what you were just saying just now. Another of our winners, the one who won the Societal Impact Award, uh, which is also very, you know, um, somebody I know well as well. You know, her knife when the application for the award was very interesting. The first thing that she did is that she challenged us on the award. She said that we were, it was, she disagreed with the idea of creating this notion of water women, which obviously come from this, uh, you know, the water woman award comes from the idea of Wonder Woman. And so she challenged us on us. So first, she, I, I like that, she was challenging us. But then her story was following. Her story, which was the story about impact, societal impact. First thing that she said in, in the narrative part of, of her application was actually she had, uh, she was doing research in, in, in Africa and how she had longitudinal, longitudinal study uh, and, you know, very interesting story. But then she said, I met a, a person from this area. And so she actually got herself embedded in the community, in the village. She had children with this, with this man who was from this uh, local area where she was doing the research in Africa. And, you know, I think many in the past, many people will have discovered that automatically because you say, well, how can she be objective? How can she, you know, this we stand now getting into the area of epistemological debates. But what I found was actually very important because she was being self-aware of the reality of her research being intimately impacted by the fact that she had married somebody from that community. Uh, and she married this person as part of her, you know, uh, not before she started research, but while she was doing the research and you know i think those stories need to be told because that is the very reality on how this particular woman did a 20 years of research in a particular area and got a certain impact she happened to have married somebody from there which means that she got a different view on the story on the, on the people and all the things and i think those stories need to be told because they are genuine research processes as well they they they, they are part of the mix and how research takes place so yeah, I, I I think that illustrates well your point. Yeah, well, it, it, it's fantastic. So uh, Water Woman has had one edition, no? You're you're yes. and it's been very successful. So we we can't wait for the second one. And in a way, I can't wait for the International Law Woman Awards <laughs> with the <laughs> yeah. same uh, with the, the same outlook. But um, I think um, you know one of the things when I hear you talking about about your projects and specifically. Um, uh, this uh, this initiative, which you can see, I mean, the listeners can't see us, even though because we're uh, recording in lockdown, we are recording our faces as well. But we're rather after three months of lockdown, better if you just hear our voices. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, <laughs> yes, I, I think is the is your level of enthusiasm. No, is the there's something that has always inspired me of you, uh, which is um, you know you believe in what in what you are um, saying, you believe in what you are studying. But I can see I can see it in your eyes how your your brain works in a way. You know, it's something that uh, how by articulating your thoughts and by um, 
uh, telling uh, people and having people listen to you and you listen to what they have to say about your own thought process actually uh, creates your your the next step no and it's something that has always really really inspired me of you that you really genuinely believe in in your research and the enthusiasm is fantastic it's just something that <laughs> is so so refreshing and and i don't know the passion of the of every project and and this is you know i guess we it's we're very lucky that we've grown in that environment in which we both uh, can uh, can uh, uh, be very enthusiastic about what we're doing and even people around us even if they don't really understand so much they are there to listen and i think uh, being able to listen to to our colleagues and listen to what they they're thinking that uh, being able to create a space that is safe and where nobody's gonna th- uh, say um uh, that's that's stupid now we know that that in academia is very important but for women uh, it tends to be you know when you are a junior when you're young when you feel like a little girl um it's very important to have a safe space that nobody tells you you know, that you're getting all worked up about something that is going nowhere, no? Even if it is, even if it's going nowhere. I think that's so fundamental that to have the, the, the safe space, but also in a way that, you know, your institution has the responsibility of providing you with that space and more, has the responsibility of providing you with the, it has to tell you, you have to, to, to I just, I'm going to illustrate this with, with another anecdote because I, I really like it. So I have this new colleague, he's a new lecturer. He is fantastic, he's so charismatic, he's charming, he's lovely, he's a nice guy, also bright and so brilliant. And you can see this is a rising star, right? And he, uh, he he's just coming out of his postdoc and he has into a lectureship. And he has, I don't know, several papers in science and nature, which, you know, in, in natural science is like, wow, that, the top, no? The, uh, and, and then I asked him one day, hey, David, how, how, tell, explain to me, how, how did you get a paper in, in science? And he said, literally, you go to Cambridge for doing your undergraduate, as he did, and you spend four years being told how awesome you are. And he said this literally, you know, this is what happens, uh, you know, uh, people in certain backgrounds and, and you know male and female but traditionally mostly male white males going to Cambridge going to Oxford going to whatever they just they're being told by institution you're worth it you can do it you, you are part of something good and you know I think the institutions have the responsibility of telling us and telling our colleagues you know you're great you have all this potential you're awesome you're awesome and then you start being oh you know Maybe actually I'm good. Maybe I can go for this. Maybe I can actually submit my paper in science. Maybe I can go for this big grant. And this is something that for me, when people ask me, you know, what has changed for you uh, by becoming professor, I realized that it has been that realization, the realization that I now have the responsibility as part of the sort of um, uh, professor, uh, the, the, the top layer of, of the academic uh, body of my university to provide that support, to provide that message to tell my, my colleagues some. And, uh, and I think that's important because, you know, when, when you promote to professor, uh, you have to demonstrate, particularly if you promote within your strong institution, 
you know, if it's, it's a promotion rather than a, a new hire, uh, you have to prove that you already have made the achievements, right? So in a way, for me, nothing has changed a lot in terms of I don't feel more pressure of getting grants. I don't feel more pressure of, of, uh, of publishing because I was already doing those things by the time I applied. What has completely changed for me is my own position, feeling now, on the one hand, feeling the responsibility to do that, but also feeling that now I have the platform because I have, in a way, you know, I'm, I'm about to become 41. And if I think about it, I have 25 more years of this. If I, if I uh, retire at 65 or maybe even more if I retire later, so what am I going to do with these 25 years? Yes, I'm going to continue chasing grants. I'm going to continue publishing papers because I really want to do my research. But the truth is that the thing that I, and the new thing I want to do is to, you know, change my world, and not just through my research and change the environment and, and the natural environment, but to change the, the world around me because, you know, 25 years is a lot. What am I going to do with that time? How many more papers are going to get me excited? A few. I'm going to try to see the science or nature, but uh, it's, it's not that that is going to make a huge difference from uh, two years ago when I got my promotion. Yeah, interesting. And also now, how many more conferences? I always say, oh, how many more conferences can you go to? Actually, now, none, because we're locked down. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. but um, uh, probably for us, it's, it's been pretty good. The lockdown came when we were slightly conferenced out. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think this is, you know, this is very, um, it's very important that uh, we get to a point uh, uh, when you're um, an academic and achieve this uh, level of seniority that we have as professors a little bit you think oh, so now what you know in terms of like some of our colleagues choose more management in terms of um start being heads of departments or or uh, you know get uh, this uh, more involved in the management of the university etc or uh, management of research institutes etc and to what extent uh, what does bring us this kind of uh, enthusiasm again and uh, you can see our eyes light up and uh, it, it parallelly and separately without talking about it we both have uh, started making uh, projects um, to uh, reflect uh, um, empower and uh, push the female academics uh, uh, around us it's been quite interesting how it literally did happen separately and well, uh, it did happen uh, separately but I think it's not unrelated to the fact that both processes this uh, happened uh, quite um, in parallel to us both becoming professors. So you became a professor before me and your process of trying to empower other women, I think it also came a bit before me. And then I became professor and I started trying to empower other women. Uh, so I think those things are not related. And I think they come back to the same point before is that we, we have our promotions to professors having a very empowering process for both of us which in our case had led to, to this desire of, of do something to, to help others. And so, yeah, it, it, they did happen in parallel, but I don't think, you know, they are linked through this, this, this idea of the external world telling us, you know, yes, we recognize the achievements that you have made. Through, and that's what I think the promotion has represented. That's what becoming a professor means, I think. 
Yeah, no, I think it's very interesting. I think that there is a differentiation you made between um, being recruited as a professor from a more junior position into a place in which you, you go in having to promise lots of things like that. You know, I can promise that I have the potential to be the, this and do this. And uh, whilst uh, being uh, promoted internally, it's uh, it's really a recognition of that you are already that senior and you're already doing that job. It's not so much a, a common you can do it it's a um of course you've been doing it so so i think yeah probably that parallel path is um has really um made us uh, in the two years i think has it been two years that we've been professors is it 2018 yeah right? yeah. Uh, yeah so in these two years Instead of uh, if we had been recruited as professors in different institutions, we probably would have been crazy two years trying to prove that they did that they took the right decision on hiring mm. us. And and but whilst uh, now we knew that the university had taken the right decision, they knew because they had hired <laughs> us before, and um, and we have been able to employ this time in in reflecting as of what is our uh, role both in science in in academia and uh, and uh, in you know both in science and in uh, the academic life so what um what's next julia because um the you know we we're walking into an absolute uncertain future for um academia in a way like for for the whole society we're going to um the future of the profession that is different as i said this the, it just if you're not women art out by now you will be very soon uh but um so so we're not going to network as much we're not going to have these uh, moments of uh, interaction with our peers or it's going to be different and our own teaching is going to be different and and this is an important element that i also think about because part of the job is the teaching job and it, it, this it gives you satisfaction this this the moments with the students the, the seeing them grow the you yourself challenging yourself at that learning the basis the basis of the discipline again relearning that that's part of the, the the excitement of the job as well and not having that face to face is not just a, a challenge for them actually it's a challenge for us as well as lecturers you know how do you and you know, how do you kind of uh, motivate yourself to uh, teach a screen rather than uh, hungry eyes? What, uh, in your case, I don't know, uh, the parents well, are? Well, I think as anybody will say right now, this, the only certain thing, thing is that we don't know, right? This has shaken us. We, we are being, I mean, there's, as, as a generation or several of us, several generations, we have not lived anything like this. I mean, this is like the biggest thing ever and we don't know what's going to happen. But, but you know, now that you bring the teaching and what has happened with this situation with, with the pandemic and, and the whole online teaching, there is something that worries me very much and that I would like to take the opportunity to, to express here. Is the fact that, of course, like any other university, we have gone through all these crazy what's going to happen, get ready for online teaching. Besides the very imminent, the rushed way in which online teaching has had to happen, what's going to happen next? And we know that Cambridge has gone online uh, for the next year. And, you know, there's all these dates and whether, you know, some universities have taken the decision to just really deliver online courses and things like that. And I really would like us to to very very careful with this um 
online teaching because and, and the reason why I bring this now is because of the conversation we've been having about the careers and how you know we can impact on other people's career and I think is you know technology and online we need is going to stay with us it can provide a fantastic resource but I really would like us to be very careful of we need to find ways in which we can st still deliver face-to-face -face in one way or another, obviously when it's safe and we need to be very creative on, on doing this. And the reason why I'm saying this is because for me, I, I, I am convinced that a fundamental part of the orientation that my career has taken and that has made me successful in it has had to the realization of my own strengths and uh, weaknesses. And the... You know, one of the very significant ways in which this happened was through uh, attending some, very early my PhD, attending some training that I did uh, on my PhD, in which I realized that I was not understanding anything of the, of the lecture. I was literally, I mean, this was a course in Copenhagen, it was a summer course, I already had the data for my PhD, and I went to this course to try to, to learn how to analyze this data. Okay, and I remember I started every day trying to, to understand what was going on. It was a highly sophisticated, very, very high level statistical course. I honestly didn't understand anything of what was being said in this course. And every morning I arrived trying to understand something. And by the first break, I realized that I was not going to understand anything. And all I wanted to do is go back to the hotel and call my mama and cry because I didn't understand anything. And then it was very interesting how everybody in the class was saying, oh, I don't understand anything. Oh, I don't understand. This is so hard. This is so hard. But then I realized that actually they were taking notes. I said, no, your level of not understanding anything has nothing to do with my level of not understanding anything because I don't even know where to start taking notes in this. So it was very interesting because it was through elements like seeing notes, seeing their body languages. Uh, seeing the way they were saying, I don't understand anything, and comparing to my, I don't understand anything, that I realized that, you know, I should not pursue that particular line uh, of area in, in, in my area, which had to do with, uh, at the moment, the discipline was going into this very sophisticated statistical modeling. And that allowed me to have this very important uh, introspective process in which I realized that is not what I'm good at. What I'm good at is at this interface between the natural science and the and the economics, and this completely determined. It might look exaggerated, but it is not. It happened that it, it made me realize what I was good at and what I was, and I believe this could not have happened uh, uh, in an online course because in an online course we will be receiving teaching and everybody will be in the chatting in the chat function saying oh, I don't understand anything I don't understand anything and I would have felt well they don't understand anything I don't understand anything and I would have not been able to see firsthand with my own eyes and flesh that their I don't understand anything was literally not the same that mine so I think we are because you so what are we going to do uh, uh, as a profession I think it's very very important that we collectively have a deep conversation about what can these, uh, what they are going to be the effects of the pandemic, what are going to be the effect of online teaching, and not just online teaching, but also the webinars. You know, what are the things that if we move too much to the side of online, what are the things that we're losing doing that, and how can we recall them? So I think it's very, very important that we engage in this conversation, and this is not just a man management uh, decision. This is not for the, you know, the very top of the university decide we do online, we don't do online, what's the cost-benefit, uh, you know, how many students are we going to get if we go face-to-face, how many are going to go. These are very deep conversations that need to 
be based on the, his, the stories of each of us and how, you know, how have we developed our career, how we have developed our learning, and therefore how can we develop our teaching. So I think we're facing ourselves now with a very uh, unique situation, and I think we need to engage in that conversation of n- let's not leave this to management decisions. These are also academic decisions that have to do with each of our careers and each of our experiences. So I guess this is like a plea, let's all uh, engage with this and let's try to rethink uh, our profession. It is the same, you know, we're talking about teaching right now, but we could talk about conferences. Do we need to go to 20 conferences a year? No, we don't. We have learned that we don't have to do the conference. I personally have not attended any conference during the lockdown because I didn't, I didn't put myself to watch conference and video of people for three hours while I had to spend another three hours in a meeting. Is, is conference the way? What's the new way in which we have to deal with, uh, with interacting, with networking? Uh, yes, we shouldn't travel so much. Yes, we need to have social distancing and we don't know how many times are gonna, we're going to be in and out of, of social distancing in the future. You know, like any other sector, this is we we each of us need to engage in this conversation about how we're gonna reshape this because obviously it seems that we have to reshape. Uh, and yeah, I, I like many other people have been saying this is also an opportunity to reshape all the things like all the kind of emergencies. Now we have the health emergency, but we still have the climate emergency, which going to twenty conferences doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I think this is... We still have the inequality emergency in which um, well, of course, part of the population is totally um, out of the um, uh, debate and uh, they, they are uh, literally suffering inequality every day in every aspect. So, yeah, just wanted to, to add that emergency exactly. there so the, 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 One thing that the pandemic has shown us that if we have to, sorry, if we want to, we can completely radically change everything around us. We can stop the wall. We can put ourselves upside down. We have done it for the pandemic. Why don't we do it for um, an equal pay, for example? You know, why don't we, you know, because if they tell, no, we can't, we can't. Yes, we can. Look what we have done. So we can do this mm-hmm. for climate change. We can do for uh, equal pay. We can do this for the opportunities of the um, uh, minorities. We can do this to stop res- racism, which is like, oh my God, you know, like, crazy that we still have this situation so yeah, there's so many emergencies we're, that we need. yeah it's just you can hardly believe it right so yeah. so yeah I mean, it's, you know sorry we started with online teaching i have gone much more global no than but, that, I, but, but I, I think you I, you're it, this you're uh, actually hitting the nail on the head that like we online teaching is just one of the um elements that we need to think very carefully about how we normalize how we normalize uh interfaces that actually um dehumanize people in certain ways because uh, you know online teaching in a way homogenizes everybody the 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 learner and the educator because if if we end up having to because necessarily we might end up having to like record lectures or just talk to a powerpoint or something like that we are also uh, losing some part of the of the value of the of the educator so i think um, i think this this is very very important and uh, i always um, am very happy that you brought up the equal pay because it's a question that i have um and I've decided and told myself, no matter uh, where the conversation goes, I always going to, at some point, bring this up again. 
And uh, because I guess, you know, uh, uh, some colleagues might be tired of hearing it, but women, female academics are paid significantly less than their male colleagues. And we do significantly more in terms of pastoral care, domestic uh, university um, chores, uh, domestic work uh, university, plus the domestic work that we do at home, obviously. And uh, I just wanted to, you know, bring it up again. And I'm sure that uh, it's uh, it's something that uh, we don't talk about enough uh, in, tra- in transparent terms. We talk about it in abstract terms and we never individualize it. You know, I can um, uh, safely say that I earn uh, half of some of my male colleagues, and uh, and uh, it's very difficult to say it publicly and individualize it, because as long as the debate is abstract, it continues to not be resolved. So, well, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting yeah. that you say that you know you earn half of what your male colleague. You know, I have no clue of you know how much. Uh, like nobody, you know, it's completely obscure. I just have no idea because the way they, the the the, the grades work is that you know how much grade ten, which is a professor earns, you know the, the bracket, but the bracket is huge. I think the bracket uh, goes from uh, fifty nine thousand to eighty eighty nine thousand or something. So that's huge, you know. So you can be at the bottom of that, or you can be at the top of that, and there's you yeah, know thirty thousand pounds difference. I know, I know, but one interesting thing with regards to that is that um, it's difficult to talk about it, you know, when you are uh, so senior, it's difficult to talk about it with your other female colleagues, because obviously you earn more than they do, and you probably earn significantly more than someone who is at the, uh, you know, the very early career of the the development, uh, very early stage of the academic development, and uh, therefore, you know, obviously they should be earning enough and to make a decent living and, and to have a, a decent future. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I earn significantly more. It doesn't mean that I don't earn significantly less than my male colleagues. So mm-hmm. it is, uh, you know, sometimes I, I feel as if I'm not legitimized to be part of the debate because I earn a good salary in general, but you know, this good I, salary I, I, is not <laughs> the same salary. <laughs> I think it's very interesting. You know how we've been uh, a little bit before the pandemic hit us, we were on strike for uh, the four fights, one of them being equal pay. And I, you know, there was the, the only two professors from my department who were on strike were my colleague, Professor Julia Steinberger and myself. Uh, it was very interesting. So we were the only two professors. First, there is only... I think there's only f- there, there was only four female professors in my department. Now there's only two because two of them have, have changed jobs. Uh, so first, we were much less, obviously. And second, we were the only ones who were on a strike. And it was so interesting because in the middle of this strike thing, you know how we get all these emails about vote for this, vote for that. And, you know, and then one of the things we had to vote for, it was something I don't remember the details, but I remember I read it and I didn't understand it very well. So I forwarded to one of my colleagues who is very savvy on these union things and all the strike things. And I say, oh, you know, what, what does this mean? What do I have to vote here? And he said, well, you know, this means that people, it meant some kind of salary thing, but essentially this salary thing benefited uh, benefited mostly those on higher uh, uh, grades. So essentially, you know, I, 
and it had been one of these wings by the by the union through the strikes things. So actually, it turns out that one of the things that we had won through these fights benefited those at the higher pace, in particular because of some kind of calculations or whatever. So you know, I realized that you know this fight was benefiting uh, the, the professors and. There were no professors on the strike, you know, and while yeah. you know we had we benefiting from this. So, and I was, uh, you know, saying, wow, you know, I was, I actually started lobbying some of the other professors yeah. to join the fight because I, and I you know, actually guys, probably we it already. significantly benefited male academics because there's a higher percentage of male professors. <laughs> and precisely us because we earn more so we can do with the cutoff of the pay yeah, during the strike true. days, but also because we have already achieved things. So, you know, fighting for, uh, you know, we are in a very privileged position, so we should be uh, helping others uh, get into that position. Agreed. It's very interesting that you say that. The, I, the only other uh, professor that I remember in the picket was uh, uh, was another professor in the business school, a female professor. So I, I think in, yes. in our pickets as well, there were only two professors and the two of us were female. So that, that's yeah. quite interesting and you point uh, to point it at. Um, yeah, that, that's, this has been a fascinating conversation, Julia. This is it's always fantastic to talk to you. It's always <laughs> great to talk to you about environment, about society, about... Um, whether we need to go to the hairdresser or not, <laughs> or whether we need to go for a walk uh, after we've uh, we've spent way too much time in front of the TV, uh, or whether I remember I remember when we were little, we were very little, we were already very good students. We were like spending a lot of hours studying, and um, of course, like any other um, young person, we were interested in in, all, in many things, like our the way we looked. So we had this um, theory, you and I, all this desire that we wish that the longer you spend studying, the longer you spend in your artificial lighting, because you're studying, the longer you have your bottom in the chair, in the, sand, the longer you have your elbows in the in the um, table the pl the prettier you will become so that was our wish that we so it's, i think that it's very interesting because what we want is to be able to do what we wanted which was to study and, and you know become uh, have half our own studies ahead of us but we, we didn't want to give up anything and i don't think mm. anybody should should give up anything any women you know if we want to be fit if we're going to be pretty if we're going to go hiking if we're going to do that we should be able to do all that while pursuing our careers because it's the 21st century. Uh, yeah. Come on, we can do it. Yes. Why does uh, one thing have to exclude the other? You know, why does exactly. uh, uh, being uh, little girls who, who want to study has to mean you are excluded of some other socialization uh, uh, aspects. And some of those have to do with like, uh, look at me, I had my nails. Uh, uh, I yes, have my I nails ready today. We talk about doing our nails. We talk <laughs> about buying um, body lotions. And we've talked about all those things. And we've also yeah. talked a lot about, uh, you've told me about human rights. I've told you about the environment, you know. It's very good. It's it's um it's a great uh, upbringing and it's a fantastic uh, adulthood to be able to share it with you, and um and uh, and now before we go, I just want to give uh, us both a cheer because uh, I think uh, we are probably one of the uh, last people in the UK who managed to secure some uh, European Union funding, and uh, yes. we're both. Uh, this is. Uh, 
an absolute coincidence that it's it's absolutely crazy actually that has happened it happened at the same time we both uh, are part of uh, two teams that um, have uh, obtained a uh, Mari Eskodotska um, Akuri um, Internet, uh, innovative training network uh, funding from the European Union. And mine is on sustainable uh, uh, procurement, uh, procurement of uh, uh, with sustainability and human rights aspects on it. What's yours? Mine is about uh, addressing the global phosphorus challenge. So trying to create the first uh, generation of interdisciplinary scientists specialized on addressing the challenges uh, that the scarcity and volatility of phosphorus supply has for food security, which is another fascinating topic. Not only peatlands, but also phosphorus. <laughs> I look forward to many walks along the beach uh, talking about phosphorus, and uh, and <laughs> yeah. to be you know and to be uh, uh, not only sisters but also colleagues in these new projects. And uh, it's an uh, absolute delight and pleasure to talk to you. Hi. Enjoy the pleasure rest of your lockdown. Aunt. Thank you. Yes, yes. Well, I hope it's, uh, it's ending soon. It's looking a little bit better. But let's, let's all stick together with this. And thank you very much. I think this podcast is, uh, I mean, uh, I, I heard your other podcast and I was so inspired. And when you asked me, you will do the next one? I said, yes, please. So thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Julia. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.